Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am very lucky to be joined by repeat guests of the show, Bob Elliott, as well as Andy Constant. Uh, guys, welcome to On The Margin. Uh, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very excited to have the two of you here. I didn't realize that you actually shared a desk or sat next to each other when, uh, during your time at Bridgewater uh, and your old friends. So my objective for the show is to stay out of the way as much as possible and just let the two of you riff. But maybe just to to plant our our opening salvo here and um, we can start sort of broad and, and I'd love to get your guys' thoughts. Bob, the last time you and I were chatting, it was with Cameron Dawson. We were talking about the you know this scenario that many of you following this podcast will have heard or is it going to be a hard landing or a soft landing or a no landing and bob maybe I, i'd love to just sort of get a sense from from the two of you at a high level about what your thoughts are on the possibility or how imminent a recession may or may not be and bob i've sort of sensed your your view changing a little bit um over the last couple of months so maybe i'll turn that over to you first yeah well i i think the the first thing when when you're trading markets, very important to start with what's priced in. Um, it is often uh, forgotten uh, because it's so easy to sort of get a sense of that. But I think in this case, what we've seen is we've gone from a period where if you go back a year ago, right, particularly entering 2023, everyone thought that a recession was imminent, right? That was essentially what was being priced into markets. And that didn't happen. And there were not that many of us uh, out there uh, in the public domain who said that wasn't going to happen. Uh, we took a lot of heat from it. And, uh, and you know, we didn't get a recession. And that's for a variety of reasons that, you know, we don't, we can maybe go into a little later that the economy was a bit more resilient uh, and had more momentum in it than what many people had suspected. I think the thing that's really changed uh, and, and has been a meaningful um, shift is that kind of like everyone's given up on the recession uh, view, right? If you look at stocks, uh, you know, they're pricing in 12% earnings growth in 2024. Uh, that's not consistent with a recession. I, I've seen a few recessions in my day and 12, you know, double digit earnings growth is not recessionary. And similarly, like actually the, the, short rate market really isn't pricing in a recession. It's pricing in a moderation of inflation and the Fed responding to that by delivering 100 basis points of cuts. But it's definitely, um, you know, unwound a lot of the, the sort of recessionary uh, pricing that existed, particularly post SVB. And so we sort of have this circumstance where the expansion has become longer in the tooth. We're starting to see... Uh, Parts of the economy turn to get weaker, right? Whether it's employment or, you know, probably housing on a forward-looking basis or, you know, certain areas of the economy you're starting to see weaken at a time when essentially everyone's gone all in on soft landing or no landing. And I think that's really the cruxy, interesting part of the market right now in terms of as an investor. What's interesting in trading markets is fading that relatively extreme view that we're going to pretty much no matter what, get a soft landing or no landing over the next 12 months. And the probability of that is it's not zero, but it certainly is very, very far from 100%. Yeah. So Bob and I came at this the same way in uh, the um, uh, 
six months, nine months ago when we, I, you know, was on hire for longer Island for basically by myself with a small contingent, including Bob on a different, uh, I, had, I had a little hut on, uh, on one villa. of the beaches. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I think the issue that Bob raised about pricing is the one that I think is the most interesting, which is, um, you know, when I was, you know, a year ago, nine months ago, um, the cuts for even 2023 were priced into two-year notes. And more relevantly, the cuts that were priced in for uh, 2024 were about 160 basis points. And, you know, that was sort of peak. And that is a two-year note that is really expecting the economy to sour abruptly. Um, and today, you know, we ticked at 100 basis points a couple of, you know, maybe it was sometime this week, um, where um, maybe it was 103 basis points of cuts priced into 2024. And that's where the uh, dot plot, the... Um, the uh, summary of economic projections for 2024 is at this moment. So we're basically at, in pricing in the two-year, exactly what the Fed thinks the path of interest rates are going to be, and that's for the first time. Now, I have a view, and we have the CPI number and the PPI number next week, um, and who knows what those will be. Right. My guess is they'll be a little warm because of, you know, some of the factors that have been, you know, particularly headlined, but um, who knows what they'll be. But if they are strong or in line, the SCP gets repenciled at the FOMC meeting next week or the week after, sorry, on the 20th. And I am fairly confident that the 560 terminal rate that is currently in the June dot plot is going to be the same, basically. Maybe a few basis points higher, probably not lower, giving the Fed a chance to raise one more time if they want for 2023. And so at a 560, the question will be, do we stay at 460 in 2024? And I think that number's got to go up some um, for the Fed to say, hey, we are serious about the economy is stronger than we expect. We're serious about pausing for a long time. And so I'm expecting a number like 75 basis points. Maybe it's 60, maybe it's 80, but somewhere in that range for the cuts priced in. And that'll be an interesting thing to see. The CPI could leave it at 100 if it's cool, or we're going to 75 if it's weak. And it'll be interesting to see if the market will stay with the Fed and cause two-year note yields to rise to five and a quarter or 530. Um, and that's what I'm looking forward in the very near term. But I think the bigger point is when you come back to that, the bond market now has um, negative term premiums on long-term bonds that are um, very low. And the front end of the curve is pretty boring right now in that very narrow way I've just described. But the equity market, is still in a completely different outlook for growth and nominal GDP, let's say, mm. um, in this 12%, not only for 2024 earnings growth, but also, and no one knows, but 2025 is also 11% GDP growth. And those are two big numbers when you have a 10-year note at four and a half or 430. 
So I still don't think those markets line up well, but I would say that the front end of the curve, two, twos, are about right. So, Andy, I'm, I'm just going to ask you, could you define uh, just for the audience what term premia is and the significance <laughs> of that uh, when you meet? Because because I've got some more specific specific questions for you around it. So, to put it simply, every asset, by and large, every asset has risk. If you decide to invest in it, it could go up or it could go down tomorrow, whereas cash doesn't do that. And so if you are going to buy an asset, you are taking on risk and you deserve and are typically in most environments paid a return for somebody who wants your cash Mm. to consume or to invest in the real economy. Um, And for those reasons, basically it can be assumed that investors get a excess return over cash through time. So then the question is, okay, so that's what risk premium is. And it could be in a 10-year bond. They call it term premium. It could be in an equity. Um, They call that equity risk premium. But if you're comparing the equity risk premium to 10-year notes, there's a bond risk premium in there. But conceptually, Mm. every asset has some excess return over cash. And so then the question is, um, is the current excess return over cash a good deal? Meaning, okay, I'm going to take risk, but I'm going to get well rewarded for it. And the answer to that is no, in almost every asset market in the United States right now and most around the globe. And so cash is more attractive than assets. And so why is that? It's because cash is now paying a very high interest rate. And so the question is, do you want to buy assets now because you think conditions are going to get even better for assets, meaning cash is going to become even more easier, or risk of assets, their volatility, et cetera, (coughs) is going to fall? And I think the odds are that both of those things go badly, where both cash becomes tighter and asset volatility, portfolio volatilities, which are at a very extreme lows right now, increase modestly. And both of those things would result in assets um, selling off relative to cash. And I think that's the world we're in. That was a really helpful explainer. I want to return specifically to the yield curve. And when we had Michael Cow on the program uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked actually about two things. One, uh, Bear Steepner, Andy, which I saw you talking about on Twitter, but also uh, an interesting observation that he made in the difference between the 210 spread in the US versus other developed economies. And as you as you both well know, the spread on twos and tens has been, we've had a very inverted yield curve for a, a relatively long time. And I think that's caused some older market participants uh, to be a little bit cautious. It is a predictor, not a perfect one, but a generally pretty good predictor of a recession. Um, and I think what has even been a little bit more extreme in this particular case is that the Fed has been hiking into an inverted yield curve, which is pretty abnormal uh, from my understanding of, of a Fed response. So, but if it, And what's interesting is that while the U.S. yield curve is deeply negative, there are other developed countries out there 
that do not. They actually have a positive uh, twos and tens yield curve. I don't know if you guys have any opinions on that, and then I'd just love to dive into um, you know, your thoughts on the inversion of the yield curve and what a bear sleepner could mean. The thing when I look at, at other developed economies um, and I look at their yield curves, like the twos, tens part of it is not as interesting to me as where twos are relative to target rates. And so you look at Europe mm-hmm. and you see a circumstance where they're running five to 6% inflation. Their target rate, you know, is four, give or take, you know, and the two-year rate is priced in at three. Like what's like what's going on there? That's an inflation mandate, an inflation targeting central bank that is failing to meet its mandate and not like kind of failing to meet its mandate, like brutally failing, like desperately failing to meet its mandate. And what the market's pricing in is hundreds of basis points of cuts relatively shortly. Um, and of course, you'd ex- typically expect growth to... Uh, to, to weaken in response to the tightening. And you have seen some weakening in overall economic conditions in a place like Europe. Um, but it's just, it's not, it's not enough. And I think that's really the, that's really the, the, the challenge here as we scan across all these central banks and really, I mean, basically all the central banks in the world have capitulated, right? They're all at pause or close to pause, right? That's, that's basically how they've settled out what's going on at a time when in no central bank, no major developed central bank has inflation fallen to their target, certainly not in in a way that has been long enough to for them to dur- to believe that it's down there durably, right? And I think that is that's the very interesting tension point. So when I look at some of these other economies, particularly on the short end, I see a real gap between uh, how low the two year point of the cycle is relative to the target rate, um, and see that gap suggesting that even if they hold you know, flat for a while, right? Which would be like probably imprudent, but at least at least a reasonable path, like a, a plausible path that they would pursue, even if a bit imprudent. Um, you know, that's not that's going to get a lot of cuts priced out of those short end markets, and I think probably put pressure, uh, you know, necessarily on on the longer parts of the curve since the short end is it is in the long end to some extent. And so I think that's kind of what's interesting to me is this sort of big global central bank bet on pause hmm. at a time like, um, you know, where I, you know, I asked this question on, on Twitter a couple of days ago. It was basically like, is it, is it, you know, is that going to be the bigger mistake of this cycle? Right. Is, is the pause going to be the bigger mistake than the bet on transitory? Right. Because it's the pause that could create entrenchment. And so that's, you know, the markets are not reflecting even extended pause, let alone the need to do more work to bring those inflation pressures down. By and large, my thinking on Europe is that um, the underperformance of bonds relative to stocks is almost more extreme than it is anywhere else on the globe. Like bonds have just, can, and they had, and for good reason, bonds were yielding zero. And so they had a lot of room to underperform. And I'm, re- I'm coming to a point where I think long-term bonds relative to um, European equities are probably um, a good buy. But I, and I also think, to echo your point, that another decent idea is 
um, buying long-term bonds and selling two-year bonds. Because while we are not as inverted, we're more inverted in the U.S., perhaps we'll get quite a bit more inverted in uh, the um, European markets. Now, the U.K. is a little narrower because it, until recently, was expecting lots and lots of hikes. But again, they've also sort of come in. Yeah, that that's come in mostly. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, that's but, the, but Europe is you know Germany is um, you know could see some significant further in, um, inversion in my opinion. But it may pivot around fives and leave tens fairly cheap. So I'm looking at that as an interesting play, particularly uh, against a short in uh, Euro stocks or DAX. I like that trade uh, there, the, putting it against the stocks, because in many ways, the bond market has reflected the meaningful, like has reflected at least some meaningful repricing of the of the value of money that's necessary, uh, the value of cash that's necessary uh, in, in Europe to fight the inflationary pressures that they have. But stocks have not at all right like where we're we're basically at highs right um uh which is kind of incredible to think that that's how it's getting priced now you know there's some global dynamics going on there too because a lot of those companies are global in nature but but the but the gist of the point that you're saying i think is quite compelling which is that um you know is that relative to bonds it is uh, it is less of a compelling story. I think one of the things, though, when I look at the European markets, and maybe maybe really when I look at the UK market in particular, which again, UK stocks very important to recognize. UK stocks are global in nature; they're not predominantly um, you know domestically oriented in the United right. Kingdom. But what I do see is meaningful differences in the pricing between US stocks. And a number of uh, and the stocks in those a number of those other uh, economies. So if you look at like UK stocks, uh, I I had a tweet about this uh, a couple of days ago. You know, you're you're looking at like earnings yields that are you know close to double what they are in the U.S. You know what that what does that imply? You know, you have U.S. companies are global in nature. UK companies are mostly global in nature. Obviously, there's more tilting towards the U.S. and U.S. stocks, but like. You know, you've got a pretty wild divergence there in terms of the pricing that's been a function of a number of different things. You know, just people interest, you know, trend following US stocks plus the dollar being strong, et cetera. But it's created like a pretty remarkable difference in the pricing across developed stock markets. And so, um, you know, that we're just talking through a complicated set of trades, but this idea of, um, you know, holding, uh, foreign foreign stocks and particularly like UK stocks and other places relative to US seems pretty interesting in this environment. Yeah, I haven't thought of that one. That's a good one. I'm going to take a look at that. <laughs> good. I, that's the whole point, Andy. Give you a few. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On the Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of Blockworks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but Blockworks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. 
Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. The interesting thing about the U.S., let's come back to the steepener in the U.S. And um, I think you have to start with this idea of what is the Fed trying to do in terms of raising interest rates? Mm. Remember, prior to QE and QT, when they didn't use their balance sheet as as readily, Mm. all they did was um, shift the front end of the yield curve, the short rate. Uh, Mm. But their goal was no one finances or minimal number of people finance at the short rate. What they finance at is the sort of longer term rate where mortgages are, et cetera, Uh, long-term corporate bonds, um, some obviously – finance floating, but most of the U.S. finances in the longer-term rates. And so what their goal was was to raise short-term rates, which would then make it difficult for an investor in a bond to desire to own bonds relative to what cash was yielding, and that would cause a re-steepening of the yield curve or bear steepener of the yield curve. And that was the way it worked. And I still think they want that and still are pulling on that lever to raise rates so that the back end will ultimately tighten financial conditions. But they've been, and and quantitative tightening is another example of that. But all of that depends on there being supply of long-term bonds. It means someone needs to want to borrow money. If, they, if no one wants to borrow money, long-term interest rates aren't going to rise. So you have to look at who needs to borrow money. The consumer doesn't, particularly the homeowner, because they have the greatest le- loan they've ever seen and probably will ever see um, in their home. And corporates, particularly the high-grade corporates, either have cash, like some of the Magnificent Seven, um, or are financed for term at very attractive rates. Banks, you know, they should pass through their interest, short-term interest costs to their um, depositors, and that's some that in some way they are, but mostly they're stealing from depositors, and so their financing is pretty damn cheap too. And so that nobody needs to borrow. But then, and then. Nine months ago, the debt ceiling came on, and uh, the government said, you can't borrow. Government can't borrow anymore. So they aren't borrowing. And so shockingly, the yield curve inverted even further as the Fed kept raising rates, and no one wanted to borrow. So rates in the long end didn't transmit what the Fed wanted them to transmit. And not surprising, the economy and certain asset markets rallied when there is no borrowing needed, interest rates are staying low, everyone Mm -hmm. has cash. And so we saw what we saw while the debt ceiling was in place. And then even in May, when the Treasury decided to refill their checking account, the TGA, they decided to use bills, which there's plenty of demand for bills, like $3 trillion, well, $2.2 trillion, $2. trillion at the time in the RRP. And so those, we, we'll, we'll, we'll take all the bills you want. We don't need this RRP thing. But all that changed. 
and it changed on uh, July 31st when the government said, hey, our deficit's getting a lot worse than we expected. We're going to issue uh, $250 billion more bonds between now and the end of the third quarter. Mm-hmm. And we're going to issue uh, to make it $1 trillion in total for the third quarter. And then surprising everybody, including me, who had the most bearish forecast in terms of issuance, issuing $850 billion in new money in Q4. And that shifted the winds. Now there's a borrower. There's a borrower who wants our money, and they want it because they want to pay off the Fed, who is doing QT. And that money has to be financed by the private sector. And that's putting a headwind on assets that I think will cause a long-term, it won't happen over, it's happened recently, but it won't happen fully until that issuance actually comes to market. And it's beginning. We'll have huge auctions next week and threes, tens, and thirties. And each, every other week for as long as I can forecast, we're going to have a boatload of new borrow long-term borrowing to put pressure on long-term interest rates. I agree. Totally agree with Andy. And Andy's been all over this, like better than basically anybody in terms of what this shift in government borrowing dynamic will have, how the impact it'll have on the, on the long end. I'd also add, you know, it wasn't just, you know, the, the government wasn't just depressed in its borrowing. Corporations were depressed in their borrowing and households were depressed in their borrowing. And, you know, households don't really need to go out and borrow given the fact that, you know, like the le- the magnitude of housing activity is relatively modest, but corporations do need to go borrow, right? Like you can't have an environment where corporates basically don't issue any bonds, right? And don't engage in any borrowing for extended periods of time. And so what you actually saw, what you, what you saw as interest rate throws and then became even more acute after the SVB circumstance was that a lot of corporate corporates came out of the bond market, basically no issuance in long end, just basically did nothing for like six months, uh, you know, maybe overstating this a little bit, but it was very low, it was secularly low yep. corporate borrowing. And that just couldn't persist. I mean, think about it. You've got plenty of companies that have, you know, debt that's coming due that needs to refinance. They obviously don't want to do that as much as they possibly can, but at some point they've got to come to the market. And so it's been interesting to see, you know, we're starting to get that bleed of corporate borrowing back into the market as well. And so if you put those two things together, that is, um, you know, that is uh, a real challenge, right? In terms of the amount of duration supply that's coming into the market. Um, And it's also a reflexive challenge, which is if interest rates stay low and mortgage borrowing picks up, then that'll raise the demand for borrowing, which will raise interest rates, which will create a, a lid on the ability to borrow mortgages, you know, borrow uh, uh, or the desire to borrow in the future. And so you've got basically like you had this sort of like perfect Goldilocks moment for like nine months of the year, or eight months of the year when it came to the long end. And that is now over. Uh, and that's just such an important thing to recognize in terms of how this market is changing uh, on a forward looking basis. Even just hearing those numbers, Andy, out of your mouth, I mean, a trillion in Q3, 850 billion Q4. I mean, the CBO, I think they came out with their first projection 10 years into the future, you know, projecting a $2 trillion deficit per year. It it kept getting revised up. I think the original numbers were 1.8, then it was 2 trillion a year. 
I mean, this run rate is in- pretty incredible, right? Um, so to your point, you could certainly see this sort of negative feedback loop kick in, bringing more long-term bonds onto the market. Then you get your bear steepener. So maybe the recession that we opened the show talking about that didn't come, maybe it was some sort of combination of uh, expectations and things that were baked into the market. Or maybe, frankly, it was just the amount of uh, you know stimulus and sort of the borrowing dynamics that took place uh, earlier this year. But you could certainly start to see that reverse. And then what I haven't asked you guys about that about is inflation. And it does not escape me that if you go back 1940s or 70s, whatever your preferred analogy is for inflation, the common dynamic that happened between the 40s and the 70s is it was stop-start, right? There were, there were periods of high inflation where it accelerated, then it looked like we got back to target, and then it would kick back up again. So to your point, it, it does seem like the market is pricing in what the Fed is saying is going to happen with inflation, which is we're going to get back to our 2% target soon. But you know, when you combine this unbelievable amount of borrowing from the US government and the possibility of inflation returning, I mean, how do you guys forecast out what happens if both of those things end up combining in the wrong way? Yeah, let me uh, address the borrowing and the budget um, because I think it's important to recognize that um, it's my strong view, and maybe it's 10, maybe it's 50 years that it'll last, that when the U.S. wants to have a budget deficit, they can that literally the money that they uh, borrow, they spend and hand it to the, to the private economy. And so it self-finances. Um, now, the clearing price is another matter. But I think in the near term, the focus on the $2 trillion, I, my number is $1.6 trillion. I think there's going to be a bit of a standoff in October and they'll – grab some, um, you know, there'll be some concessions on the budget. I'm going at 1.6 trillion. That's my rough number. But that's not important. What's important is the money that is borrowed from the private sector. Now, it'll be 1.6 trillion, but that money will be spent in the private sector, so there's no money destruction. The money will get destroyed in two ways. One is that the um, quantitative tightening, the $722 billion of Treasury runoff from the Fed's balance sheet, will require $720 billion of investment from the private sector, which will squeeze out asset markets. So that's the important number, the 720. Assuming QT keeps going, which I think it has to to deal with the inflation question you mentioned, um, that's the pressure, not the two trillion or the one point six trillion. It's the extra seven twenty that the private sector has to assume, and then there's the Treasury General account, which should peak at the end of December. And as long as it stays steady, that doesn't require any more private sector financing. So I'm focused on that number, but $720 billion is a lot for the private sector to absorb, particularly given the other supply issues, which could include currency defenders um, and who own our bonds and will almost certainly include uh, U.S. banks who still have to either meet new regulations, have to issue long-term treasury, uh, long-term corporates, 
or need to pair their balance sheet of long-term bonds. So that's the big pressure. Let me just hit on inflation briefly. We've got strong labor market. That's got to get hit. There's no other way to really kill inflation without some pain in the labor market. And we're seeing minimal pain. And then the other thing I think is important is to sop up some of the uh, money that has was created with the $6 trillion of fiscal stimulus during COVID that's still sloshing around our system, largely, by the way, in corporate's hands. Um, and if they if they they either keep it in their hands or they spend it on assets or they lose to labor and start paying it out in wages but that money sloshing around is bad for inflation it's going to be a, a support higher inflation and so quantitative tightening should be increased to sop up some of that liquidity and so those without those two things happening without a significant labor decline and the continued sucking out of this excess liquidity uh, cash circulating around the system, I think inflation is going to uh, be tough to kill. Yeah, and I think that's what the inflation part, um, I, I think, is, is something that uh, there's, there's too much focus on, like, the reported number. There's a reported inflation number, and everyone is like laser focused on like what is exactly going to happen with like medical insurance, you know, CPI in September versus October, and all this sort of stuff. Which you know, like those of us nerds on FinTwit do find ourselves down that rabbit hole uh, uh, every once in a while, just so that we understand what's going on. But I think like taking a step back, super important to come back to the what what drives inflation. Like what? What are the what actually drives inflation? Which is the amount of nominal spending relative to the amount of nominal production in the economy sets the clearing price of prices. Right. That's just that's how that's how uh, inflation works. And so, in order, it's not just like it's not just like some uh, academic curve that is the reason why you know you have to get wages down and labor market weakening in order to moderate inflation. It is like a common sense, intuitive rationale, which is that if you're paying people, the growth of their income is growing at five or 6% a year and the growth of their production is zero per year, like that leads to higher prices. It just like mechanically has to lead to higher prices. And that is basically where we are in the U S mm -hmm. and also importantly, where we are in Europe and in the UK, where we have essentially zero productivity growth in the economy and in all of these economies. Um, for a variety of different reasons. But, you know, that that's basically where we're at. And we have elevated nominal income growth and elevated nominal spending growth. And so until you start to resolve that that problem, right? and, and productivity doesn't get resolved like in a day, like maybe over 10 years or 20 years, or maybe AI will change. AI. We'll have our avatars <laughs> doing the speech, um, you know, doing this uh, conversation five or 10 years from now. But until that happens... Uh, you still have the productivity of of us sitting here having a conversation, uh, and and that won't change that much. And so you really you can't change that lever. You have to change the wage lever. And the way wages come down, we know, is through weakening employment. That's a very intuitive understanding of what drives wages. It's not it's not some some academic exercise. It's curve a, it's or a, anything like that, right? It's just right. 
It's just a common sense exercise. And that's the basic problem. And that's why if we tie it back to that pausing point that I was saying, which is like, it's not just that measured inflation is too elevated relative to these mandates. It's the structural inflation, right? The structural drivers of inflation across the developed world are still elevated relative to the mandates and central banks and meaningfully elevated. This isn't like a tweak right, right. between two and three. This is meaningfully elevated and central banks are giving up. They're stopping on expectation that they've done enough. That's a hell of a bet. Um, when you see what the structural inflationary pressures are in these economies. So, okay. So if I, if I'm understanding correctly, um, Bob, the, the worry is that structural inflation is still here. We haven't, we, you know, we're not George Bush standing and saying mission accomplished yet. Right. <laughs> that uh, quite an image, but yeah, it's, so there's still a lot of work to be done and the pause actually might end up being an enormous mistake. And you know, at least the way that I look at the economy today is we've got our work cut out for us, even assuming that the inflation beast is tamed. Can you walk us through, like, let's just say, obviously, none of us have crystal balls here, but let's just say there is a situation where inflation start, starts to take off for any number of reasons, right? Maybe it's energy prices, something like that. Um, but it really starts to take off again. Then put yourselves in the shoes of the Fed. I mean, what what do they do in that scenario, right? Because a lot of their, you know, their posturing and and Powell's, uh, you know, how he's addressed folks at the FOMC over the last couple of months is, yeah, we're going to have to do what we have to do. But the markets have been pricing in cuts, uh, you know, sort of beginning half of the coming year. That to me, you know, we haven't really talked about the possibility of an impending credit event. But I think in the case where inflation starts to take off, the Fed is forced to actually get much more hawkish than the market expects, I think that is the time where you could see a credit event occur at the same time that inflation starts to take off. And then if you're the Fed, you're just in a pretty tough pickle. I mean, am I am I outlining a scenario which is totally out of the realms of possibility? Or how do you think about um, what I just sort of laid out there? I think there's certainly a, a plausible scenario where the Fed pauses, where other inflationary pressure, you know, the structural inflation doesn't get resolved. Other inflationary pressures emerge. Maybe they're exogenous in, in nature, which creates a reacceleration of measured inflation, et cetera. And that, that will create a problem. That'll create a problem, which, you know, central banks will have to respond to, respond with more tightening or longer pausing or whatever it is, higher rates relative to what's priced into these economies. And that, you know, I think, Relative to what's priced in today, I think it's very important to say relative to what's priced in today, what's priced in today is that they'll cut. And what we're saying is they probably need to pause and there's some risk to the upside. That's, I think, the the nature of the interesting trade in the sort of two-year space. More interesting in Europe. Uh, most interesting, I think, actually in Europe, but also somewhat interesting in the, in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, you know, the credit event point I think, you know, a lot of people, when, when you talk to them, they say, well, look, if, if interest rates keep rising, let's just say, regardless of this inflation pressure, just long rates keep rising, sure. that something will happen. There will be a credit event, right, of some sort. Well, first of all, what I'd emphasize is first the rates rise, then a credit event happens, then rates fall, right? right. And so, like, that's a very, that ordering, the ordering matters a lot, right? So, if, if you are buying, unless you think that a credit event is emerging like today, which to be clear, like, you know, we don't see it. Where Where's where's the credit event, right? Um, you know, 
unless you don't, you're seeing a credit event today, right? Bonds will have to rise before we get into that environment. The second thing I'd say is like, look, part of the the central banks dragging their feet has been part of the, the, the benefit, let's say, the benefit of central banks dragging their feet and not aggressively tightening is that a lot of financial intermediaries, either proactively or at the at the uh, response of their regulators, have gone through an effort to reevaluate their duration risk to to start to minimize those credit those credit risks or their interest rate sensitivity. I, I put something out a couple of weeks ago, um, which is uh, you know when when we had that sort of meaningful rise in rates, and you actually saw a no relationship with the KRE. Interesting, right? If if these banks were really connect, really had big bond risks, you'd expect the KRE to get crushed in response to rising rates. Not true. And then when you went under the hood, actually, it's not like there was like, you know, a tail that was largely hedged and a tail that was highly sensitive. Essentially, no banks were sensitive to the rise in rates. And and you don't want to create your uh, bets on those banks using market information, but if you're if you're trading the macro economy, you're trying to understand is there going to be a broad credit event? Like, there's no better lens to see that than the intermarket action between those things. And so, what you're seeing is that that I think it's a very good indication of how, you know, there was a scare. The regulators came in, and the people and the entities proactively came in and said, "We got to cut the duration risk. We are cutting the duration risk." They've done that. We know we you know there's like great stories in the FT about how the Bank of England did that in the UK and basically have made these entities resilient, meaningfully more resilient to a path of rising rates. And so I think like the, or, the ordering plus the improved resilience over the course of the last 12 to 18 months puts us in a position where, you know, like, sure, if rates are 10 percent, there will be credit events. But rates at 450, 475, 5, anything that we, you know, are plausibly going to be looking at anytime soon, we're not going to have it. Yeah. LDI, SVB, man, I've lived through these things. I've sat at Solomon Brothers when the Treasury bond auction scandal happened. I And I saw when a regulator comes in and sort of makes you do stuff. I've lived through Drexel Burnham going out of business. You know, these and what that did to the high yield market, what it did to, you know, what the savings and loan unwind is, what long-term capital does, did during the, and that whole unwind. These European, these, these institutions in Europe, in the UK and the United States have had a hell of a couple of months. They, every one of them has a regulator on site every day. Things change. None of these regulators are going to get caught with their pants down on a single institution in this country. Now, there might be some single institutions that are in trouble. There always are. But, you know, this whole credit event thing is going to require a lot more pain. Nothing like four and a half percent unemployment rate and five percent treasury bond yields will unlock a credit event given the number of barn doors that have been closed in the last six months. So yeah, it's a risk. So let's get back to your bigger question, which is forget the credit event. 
can we see a pause result in higher interest, you know, a reacceleration of, of inflation? Of course we can. Will the response be to hike again? Probably. What would I think would be the way to durably kill inflation? Targeting the right thing, which is employment, amount of money in the system, and wealth effect asset prices. And the way to do that is to cause the longer end of the curve to bear steepen. Without that, it's just going to take a long, long time if you're all you're doing is waiting for borrowers to come to market, to raise interest rates, to slow the economy. To, so I think that's the response. You'll have a uh, forward guidance, which will look like we're pausing forever, and you'll have more QT. Mm. And, and I think that's that's one of the things, like, I guess um, I don't quite know how long the Fed and these other central banks will accept not getting clearly back to where they're going before they start to to get themselves back into into gear here. Like, um, if you go back and you look at um, other inflationary cycles, like the path that we're seeing right now is actually pretty usual in the sense of inflation emerges after a period of low inflation. Central banks are behind the curve because, you know, they're not used to it. They respond with some tightening. It looks like things are getting better. Then they kind of like let up a little bit and then things start to emerge again. And, you know, it usually takes like three or four waves of what I just described in order to get the like, okay, forget it. Like we are bringing, you know, we are tightening seriously and, you know, unemployment rate be damned, we're going to bring this inflation down because, you know, it takes time for it to just feel so uh, problematic for everyone in the economy um, that everyone sort of coalesces around that view. Now, you know, it took, you know, arguably like 15 years in the 60s and 70s cycle. Like, is it going to take that long here? Right. Or will they move more aggressively? I don't know. Like, that's kind of like, that's, that's the, that's kind of like, if I had a crystal ball and could understand one thing, it would be like, like, what would be their reaction function to renewed inflation? How fast, et cetera. And I don't, I just, I can't quite figure out whether it's real, you know, hawkishness and the lessons learned and all that stuff is real or is it just like talking points? Um, you know, on a sheet of paper. I, Andy, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't. Th- I certainly don't know. I think I know what levers they have to pull to make it work, and those are the ones I stated. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that's a tricky question. Um, you know, the Fed has never had a difficult time um, uh, cut hiking rates during and being tighter during elections. That's a myth that they stay out of the market during elections. In fact, eight out of the last 13 presidential elections, they've hiked. Um, but, and I'm not a tin hat at all, and politics are ga- is a game that I find to be mostly noise, policy maybe, but politics, no. Um, you know, the choice to use runoff instead of, UK style outright sales for quantitative tightening handed the stimulus, the tightening impact as we saw in the last nine months to the secretary of the treasury. 
And so she can spend down the TGA for political reasons. She can issue more bonds to slow the economy. She holds the QT policy lever, and that's unpredictable, let me just say, um, because her interests are not aligned directly with the Fed's interest and mandate, and yet she holds their most, in my view, their currently most powerful lever. Um, so, you know, I think predicting the next, firstly, it's hard enough to predict whether inflation will come back. I think structurally I'm in agreement, and I think we're going to see a higher inflation print um, relatively soon this year. Um, so I guess I'd have to wait and see what it looks like. Ah. I think yeah. I understand what assets to own when I look at it uh, and what assets to be short for such a thing and see what they do. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's kind of like like the – um, I did. I didn't. I certainly didn't mean to like put you on the spot there, Andy. That like this is an unknowable question in some ways, but I think it is. Um, it's a cruxy question because maybe less for like you know who knows. Like it's hard enough to predict the next three months. Like if we're talking about the next ten years, like whole you know <laughs> you know our our alpha decays very rapidly between <laughs> three months and ten years out. But I do think for strategic asset allocations, like you know, for people who aren't betting, you know, in the markets every day and betting every day, like that, that question is sort of a critical question that I think most are not really wrestling with. Because if you were wrestling with that, and you thought even if it was a 20% probability or a 30% probability, like you'd start preparing for that dynamic, right? You'd have to start preparing by holding the assets that you think make sense to hold, if they choose the path of, pausing and waiting too long and reaccelerating and being a little too soft and that sort of dynamic. And I think basically, you know, we talk about tactically the markets being all in on soft or no landing, like combine that with like strategic asset allocations for many folks that are essentially all in on a perfect return to 2% inflation forever. And like, you know, both are very over their skis on how this is like, like how this can play out relative to what's priced in. So anyway, that that's, you know, that's part of what's on my mind when I'm thinking about that question is more a strategic question, allocation question than a tactical one. Right. And so that, you know, we're going to say the same thing, which is combination of higher allocation to cash than you are normally exposed to um, lower allocation to 60, 40, higher allocation to commodities and probably gold and maybe crypto if that's going to work. Um, and uh, you're welcome. Um, and um, possibly um, adding on top of that some um, absolute return strategies that are uncorrelated, like hedge fund alpha strategies, um could be any form of thing of thing that is uncorrelated to the portfolio seems to me to be the long-term tactical best fit at this stage. I was listening to a, a great interview on Invest Like the Best with Lee Ainsley of Maverick Capital, um, which I highly recommend. Invest Like the Best is it was one of the podcasts that made me fall in love with podcasts. But uh, yeah, he was he was describing uh, hedge funds actually, especially the sort of market neutral long short guys not doing so hot over this past year. Um, hedge funds, I I don't have much insight into how hedge funds actually have performed. I mean, can you, can you kind of 
just as both of you guys have the background at, at Bridgewater, can you just kind of walk us through how have hedge funds done the last couple of yep. years? Like how are institutions thinking about them as a bucket? Let me give you my um, personal experience running a hedge fund that was market neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, most aren't. Most <laughs> a bit are, are directional bias most, in there. Most think they are. And mm. some cheat, right? Some always are long and they are they claim they're market neutral, but know they're beta long. And then others, like the ones I was part of, and ones that, you know, like long-term capital is a good example, um, think they are truly market neutral. And what I've found in year after year after year of data of market neutral hedge funds is market neutral hedge funds are long, yeah, I'm in that book, (laughs) are long, and I'm not one of the geniuses, um, are, <laughs> are long, illiquid assets hedged with shorts in liquid assets. And so they are, they may be market neutral, but they are not deleveraging neutral. And so in periods of time when market neutral hedge funds are experiencing a deleveraging environment, they're going to underperform. Because they are, that's their principal risk. They are levered relative value. Hmm. And when that delevers, when they lose their ability or the cost of their leverage increases, they get killed. And so 98, 94, um, 89, um, 2001, and obviously the, the mother of all is 2007, 2008. You know, some of these mortgage arbitrage trades were market neutral, but they weren't liquidity and they weren't leverage neutral. So I can't speak to whether hedge funds, I, I bring that story up because I've experienced being at a, in a position where I was market neutral and still lost money because of this deleveraging thing that, by the way, only happens when markets go down. Mm. So it's, it creates a correlation to beta at the worst possible time to be correlated to beta. You have your drawdown as a market neutral fund when it, everybody's losing money. That's You can't have that. So I think that's broadly the, the experience over the past few decades. And it just speaks to real alpha, real structural, unbiased to every factor that is part of long beta so that you really have a structurally uncorrelated alpha. And I just think that's very, very rare in this industry. Yeah, and I'd add uh, uh, March 2023 also in your yeah. uh, in your litany of, uh, of different dynamics as well, which is, uh, you know, essentially the same thing effectively happened across the hedge fund industry. I'd, I'd add, um, you know, I think Andy describes the dynamics really, really well in terms of how these things work. Um, there's also uh, there's also a positioning thing. Uh, it, it, people may or may not know this. Like my day job, essentially, is to build uh, hedge fund replication strategies, right? So, um, you know, I'm I'm very close. You know, hedge funds have basically performed, you know, very modestly uh, in uh, over the course of the year. Uh, you know, in low single digit type uh, performance, um, and I think part of it was uh, that. The March 2023 period 
um, was a particularly challenging period for them because you had essentially, like if you think about the the macroeconomic environment um, and the dynamics, the the sort of what's called the trend in the underlying dynamics, not the trend in asset prices, but the trend in underlying dynamics, you had basically a higher for longer scenario that became a deflationary depression in 24 hours. Um, and, you know, like that is a very, you know, that that can happen. Um, but it is a very hard environment uh, from an alpha trader's perspective because you're either dead wrong going into it or dead wrong on the backside of it. And so that uh, was a hindrance to alpha traders relative to those people who were long only through the whole period. Um, and it forced a deleveraging at the worst possible time, uh, as Andy describes. And then on top of it, I think, you know, hedge fund managers in general have been more conservatively positioned than um, than essentially index investing. Seeing the overall set of dynamics here, and when I say more conservatively positioned, I mean taking less equity risk, taking less credit risk, um, you know, seeing this overall dynamic for for many of the reasons that we've described over the course of the year, why you might think that um, there's more risks to the downside. And so like, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Go ask, go around and ask who the heck uh, has done better than the S&P 500 or NASDAQ this year. And if you talk amongst professional asset managers, the answer is literally no one, right? Because literally everyone has seen what's going on and has said, oh, we need to be more conservative amongst the professional manager set, amongst advisors, right? Many advisors have been more conservative than, than going all in on stocks. And so kind of, you know, who's, who's winning in this situation? It's people who basically were levered up on, on asset prices, people who were, you know, long only index investors have done very well. And basically many professional managers have if underperformed as a result. they survived the drawdown in March. If they survive the yes, you're saying the the long only the levered long only. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they survive, I was a pretty big drawdown. No, it was it was a very it was a very it was a very tough environment, and so, you know, I think, um, the hedge fund industry and it's like it's a little bit hard. You know, hedge fund managers' individual performance is like incredibly variant, like unbelievable. Like you know, like the the cone is between you know thirty. 30% below the benchmark to 30% above, right? Like that's kind of the variance of an individual managers, but the industry as a whole, like is not, if you sort of take that sort of approach, the industry as a whole is not one that goes, you know, takes big yo's on, you know, late cycle environments to go all in on equities, right? They're, they prudently maintain, you know, preserve capital during challenging market environments. This is a challenging market environment. They're mostly preserving capital in order to ensure that, you know, they continue to play the game in the future. And when there's more clear trends or more clear, obvious alpha opportunities, they tend to, to do better in that environment. Plus when there's a little bit of beta out, you know, performance as well. And so, you know, this is what you're getting is often hedge funds will be kind of, you know, mediocre performers for six, 12, 18 months relative to index investing, even though over time, over a 20 or 25 year time frame, you know, hedge funds are a good bet relative to traditional index investing given their, you know, their their approach. Yeah. I was just curious. I've read um I, I went on a big I've got on my bookshelf here, I've got various like when genius failed or the man who mastered the markets and uh all I just find it super interesting to uh people have very different approaches even within 
hedge funds, right? So I was just curious about how the asset class was performing. Um, guys, you've been you've been both super generous with your time, and I know we've gone a little bit over. So uh, I just want if, if folks want to. Uh, maybe find out a little bit more about your work, Bob. You were just getting into some of the work that you do at Unlimited, or or just follow you, or or whatever it is. What's the best way for them to find out more? Uh, yeah, uh, for me, uh, uh, you can uh, follow uh, my macro takes live. Uh, pretty active Twitter uh, on at Bobby Unlimited. I also have uh, an emerging YouTube uh, set of work uh, hey, under, there the, we go. under the same handle. Um, which I'm working on. Um, uh, so definitely check me out there. If you want to understand what we're doing at Unlimited, see whether these sorts of strategies are uh, could make sense for uh, your portfolio or your client's portfolios, uh, you can check out what we're doing at unlimitedetfs.com. And for me, um, I'm at Damp Spring. Um, I also am at dampspring.com. Um, and a partner, Nick Giovannich, and I have a... Um, site called uh, Two Graybeards, hence at least one <laughs> of the graybeards, uh, where we help uh, investors with a 20-minute weekly video on, you know, how to have better conversations with your financial advisor who you're paying, you know, $50,000 a year to to keep you in 60-40. Um, to take you so, golfing. Right, and, and take you golfing. So at Two Gray Beards on Twitter or twograybeards.com and Damp Spring and dampspring.com. Andy, can you give us a, I've, I've looked at your Twitter handle before. What's the history of Damp Spring? That's a little ah. alpha for the listeners. What, uh, so I'm an engineer the... by training mm. and a damped spring is a model for markets that I have been uh, working on for my whole career. Uh, yeah. And it really describes... Um, a, a damp spring for you is a shock absorber with a spring on a automobile. Huh. Um, and so if you think about markets and how we go from one equilibrium to another, how we hit a bump and how we either uh, spring back and forth down the road or we smooth out that through artificial external stabilizers um, it's been how I've thought about markets really since I, because I'm an engineer and it's a, the, the most basic physical construct that you can know about when you study physics. Um, it's always stuck with me. Mm. Well, I guess I just outed myself as not knowing shit about physics, but <laughs> I'm, I, uh, <laughs> asking what that is. Uh, well, congratulate guys. Um, I really appreciate you both coming on the podcast. This was a really fun one for me. Uh, the duo, you make a formidable duo. So we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Anytime. Awesome. Right. Thanks so much for having us. 